in death. There are no accidents, no coincidences, no mishaps, and no escapes. What you have to realize is that we're all just a mouse that a cat has by the tail. Every single move we make, from the mundane to the monumental, the red light that we stop at or run, the people we have sex with or walk with us, the airplanes that we ride or walk out of, it's all part of death's sadistic design leading to the grave. Because in the end, no one can escape death. And today may be your day to die. Welcome to Now Playing's Final Destination Retrospective Series. Every survivor died in the precise order they were meant to die in the accident. So now does that mean we all die? In anticipation of the release of Final Destination 5, join Arnie, Brock, and Jacob each week as they watch and review another film in the Final Destination series. Great. I'm glad I canceled my golf game for this. Good. This podcast will contain spoilers and harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Hope you have fun. Today we're talking about Final Destination. Starring Devin Sawa, Ali Larder, Kira Smith, Tony Todd, and directed by James Wong. This is Barack, co-host of Now Playing. This is Jacob. This is Arnie, and I'm scared to death because I gotta go to Comic-Con, and there's a flight involved, and I don't know why I'm scared, except I'm on flight 180 from St. Louis. Have you had any visions, Arnie? Pay attention to the visions. The details are important. Well, welcome to our Final Destination series. This is a bonus series. As a thank you to all of you who donated in our spring donation drive, we greatly appreciate your time and your effort to do so. As a special thank you, we're giving you a bonus series this summer. Yes, it is Final Destination. I'm looking forward to revisiting these. I'm kind of the one who brought it up. We talked about doing Final Destination when the Final Destination came out, conflicted with Halloween 2, so we decided to do Halloween then. And honestly, certain people thought, oh, nobody's going to see Final Destination. It won the weekend over Halloween 2, so with the new one coming out in 3D again, I thought, what better chance to go back and enjoy some mindless brutality so here we are yeah so we're going to review the four previous final destination movies in preparation for the new final destination movie coming out later this summer and i guess we'll start with where we're coming from really quick i have seen this movie before the first one you mean you're not the newbie well you know i'm kind of the newbie i've seen this movie before i have great memory well, not a great memory i have a memory of my wife and i sitting in our first apartment together in new york watching this movie i remember the plane crash scene and that's it And the real reason I remember this movie at all is because (laughs) we watched this movie and we were both reading Michael Crichton's Airframe. And then we took a flight home to see her parents about three weeks later. And we both decided bad choice of movies and books before a flight. We knew too much information about plane crashes at that time. And that was a little nerve wracking. Well, not to spoil it for you, but you won't want to watch the next one before a road trip. (laughs) Oh, great. Thanks for Wait, I got to drive to (laughs) (laughs) Comic-Con. I hope you're not on Route 29. No, there's no Route 29 in Southern California, so I guess I'm safe. 
You're all set then. So basically, I'm not the newbie technically, but I've only seen the first one once and don't remember it very well. So whatever that is, I am. And so I guess I'm technically the newbie. I've never seen these films. I saw the trailers for them. I kind of know what they're about. They just seem like they're for a crowd that's probably 15 years younger than me. (laughs) I'm willing to go into these open-minded and watch them. It's just not a film where I see a trailer and go, dude. I gotta see that movie. So I have seen absolutely none of these until this podcast. But like I said, I'm open-minded. I'm willing to go in and give them a fair shake. I agree with you. When the first one came out, I'm a big horror fan. And I'm like, nah. You gotta keep in mind, we were kind of in a glut of horror. We were kind of still at the post-Scream peak of horror. 2000, when this came out, we also had Scream 3. I was actually kind of sick of the post-modern younger skewing killing teens horror i wanted something a bit different and so when final destination came out i was like i'm skipping it and my wife marjorie caught it on encore and she watched it and was telling me how great it was how fun it was what a great movie it was i'm like no i'm I'm just not interested encore runs these movies into the ground we're channel flipping she's like you gotta see this scene and it's a scene we'll talk about later where spoiler alert stifler gets his head cut off and i'm like all right (laughs) i'm gonna watch this movie Just to get meta for a second, is it because it was Stifler? If it was someone else, would you not have cared? Had it been anybody else in this cast, had it been Kerr Smith, I wouldn't have cared. But it's Stifler getting his head cut off, and I'm like, all right, you know, I kind of want to see what leads up to Stifler's beheading. And so, yeah, I watched this movie, and I ended up agreeing with her. I made it a point to video the next two as soon as they came out. It still wasn't a rush to theaters type thing until The Final Destination, where back then 3D was still new, still novel. So that was the first one I saw in theaters, and I'm looking forward to the next one. But this is my first time seeing any of these films in quite some time. So you just said back then for 2008. (laughs) Hey, pre-Avatar. Avatar popped the 3D cherry. Sean William Scott can win a dozen Oscars in the future if he becomes that kind of actor. He will always be Stifler to me. The whole time I was waiting to call him Stifler. I even referred to him as Stifler in my notes when he first showed up. I didn't know what his name was in the film. Stifler in my notes. Yeah. (laughs) Here's the thing about his name in the film is it's Hitchcock, and we're going to talk about that. So that was very easy for me to remember as well. I mean, Hitchcock. If he showed up and I were to interview him, my first thought would be Stifler. I'd have to reach for that name. I had to kind of dig back. What was he called when he did the movie with The Rock? Sean William Scott. That's what it was. So, Arnie, why don't we start with a plot summary? High school senior Alex Browning is looking forward to a class trip to Paris with his friends. But it all goes south when on board the plane, Alex has a vision of the fuselage being ripped open midair, sucking his friends out the side of the craft before the plane explodes. Alex comes to realize it was a vision, but deja vu occurs as things happen around him just as they did in the vision. Two girls ask to trade seats and a handle falls off a seatback tray, causing Alex to freak out. Alex's rival Carter accuses Alex of trying to ruin the trip and the two get into a fight, which causes them both to be removed from the plane along with Alex's girlfriend Terry and fellow classmate Billy Hitchcock, played by erstwhile stifler Sean William Scott, who gets pushed off due to the narrow airplane aisles. Alex's friend Todd leaves to check on Alex, and fellow classmate Clear also disembarks due to Alex's warning, as do the two teacher chaperones for the trip. The pilot, obviously upset at the disturbance, doesn't want to let anyone back on the plane, but is convinced to let one of the teachers accompany the students, leaving Miss Luton to handle the troublemakers. But the plane does explode shortly after takeoff, killing all aboard, and leaving the survivors wondering about the events that caused them to survive, including Alex's vision. But one month later, things are still not well. Due to a freak accident, Todd is killed in a manner that 
that makes it appear as if he hung himself in the shower, and Clear goes to comfort Alex, revealing she has some kind of empathic power and is able to feel the emotions of the visions Alex has. The two go for reasons I don't understand either to see Todd's body and break into the morgue and there they meet the mysterious mortician William Bloodsworth who explains that they shouldn't be alive they were meant to die on the flight and Alex's vision thwarted death's design and now death is coming for them and when Carter's girlfriend Terry is hit by a speeding bus Alex realizes that the people are dying in the same order they were supposed to die on the plane Miss Luton dies when her computer monitor explodes, leaving a shard of glass in her throat and in a series of vaudevillian events lead her house to exploding. And FBI agents now believe Alex may be a serial killer. On the run, Alex gathers the other survivors and Carter decides to face death by parking his car on a railroad track. But when he chickens out, he finds his car won't start and the seatbelt won't come undone. Only with Alex's help does Carter survive, again thwarting death's design. But Billy is then decapitated by a random piece of metal flying from the train tracks. Scared for his life as he thinks he's next, Alex goes into hiding in a cottage for safety, eating only soft foods and with nothing dangerous around him. But then realizes he may be wrong because he may or may not have switched seats and clear may be the next in line. He rushes to help her and finds her trapped in her car with downed power lines on the hood, the vehicle trapped by a fallen garage door opener, and Alex decides if he sacrifices himself to save Clear, then Death's design will be done and Clear and Carter will live. He grabs the power lines, saving Clear, but is thrown Clear and revived by paramedics. And then we jump six months later to see Carter, Clear, and Alex alive and well and finally having their Paris trip, but at the table, Alex realizes he may again have had Death's design wrong and has a vision of doom. And a speeding bus causes is a sign to fall right towards Alex. Carter saves him at the last minute, but we see the sign swinging the other way right now towards Carter as the film cuts to black and the credits roll. Did you guys think it was Claire the whole movie? Because I thought it was Claire. Later in the movie, it says clear. I'm like, clear? Why is her name clear? It was perfectly clear to me. Yes, Clear Rivers. <laughs> Just a really weird name for no reason. Here's what I found amusing. In a trivia track for Final Destination 2, it's like a pop-up video thing. And it pops one up and says, you may think clear an unusual name for a character. And then the next one pops up. But in 2001, the top baby names for women were, and then it's like Madison, Molly, and Alice. And I'm like, okay, how does this explain clear? It never continues. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> so yes, you were right if you thought it odd. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's a weird day. Because I'm like, are you going to tell me Clear is number eight on this list? Oh, wait, you never go any further. Okay. The movie has the opening credit sequence with all the weird tchotchkes and things, and it was really kind of non-committal music. I didn't really dig the music in the opening credits, and I was a little put out by the slow pace of the credit sequence with all this weird imagery. Later, of course, reading on Wikipedia after watching the movie, I realized it's supposed to foreshadow everyone's deaths in the movie. You didn't get that, Brock? Not at all. I started writing things down. I'm like, okay, there's a guy that's lynched. Someone's going to get hung. There's a guillotine. Someone's going to get their head cut off. You know, there's a fan. Someone's going to get killed by something that's rotated. I'm like, okay, this really is for the group 15 years younger than me. They got to really try hard to tell the kids what's going to happen in this film. Here's the thing is I didn't get it on first watching. I'll be perfectly honest. Yeah. Jacob, kudos to you for getting it. Bravo, Jacob. For me on watching this again and having seen this film a fair number of times, but again, the first time in a while, I didn't remember this opening credits, but I'm like, oh yeah, I remember the hanging. Oh, the fan blade. Of course. Of course. The problem is. If you've seen this movie more than once, it lacks any subtlety. Jacob, you caught it even on first watching, but it's funny just how time and again, they hammer into your head everything that's going to happen in this movie. 
Mm-hmm. It's all about a tease and the hints and things. And unfortunately, I think that works best if it's something that's somewhat subtle. But when you have a hanging doll center frame, it lacks subtlety and it continues throughout the rest of the film. It feels a little honestly ham-handed, but it's also kind of fun. I don't think this movie is going for the uber serious tone as we'll get into. I agree with you there. What I was thinking about the whole time was I thought that was supposed to be Alex's room and so I'm wondering why he even has this in his room. That's what was going through my mind. What kind of kid has this in his room? I wasn't thinking about I was going to foreshadow the rest of the movie. By the time it was over, I'm like, thank God that credit sequence is over. Let's get on with it. It wasn't that long. I mean, it was your average credit sequence. It felt long for me. I'm a big fan of using a credit sequence well. And I think we might have mentioned this on other podcasts before that sometimes you can tell by the credit sequence where this movie has something or not. And this movie goes against that trend. I think it has more after the credit sequence starts, but sometimes it is waste time. Other times they use it really well, like in Toy Story. And there's ways that you can really incorporate a credit sequence into the movie to give you a jump start into it. And now reading back on it, I see what they were doing. But at the time while I was watching it, I didn't get it. I would say that with the music and the shadowy photography and everything, it sets a tone. It sets a mood. It's kind of almost like, I dare say, the overture from Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just there to kind of get you in a certain mood before the picture begins. And that didn't work for Star Trek. I think we talked about that on that podcast. We did, but it was the comparison that came to mind. (laughs) I think that perhaps you're nitpicking on it because you didn't like the music. I kind of liked that it's a riff that's repeated throughout the whole movie. It's the ominous, eerie music for the Final Destination film. And I was into it, you know, but then again, I've seen this movie before. I was excited for what was coming and I found it to be a good way to set the tone. Again, I've mentioned this on previous podcasts, while what Clive Barker would refer to as the stupid American audience munches on their popcorn. As heavy-handed as I thought this opening sequence was, Arnie, like you, I liked it. I, it set a tone. I, I knew, okay, this is how this film's going to operate. I liked the music. I thought it was creepy. You know, it was an outright horror-type music, but it was that subtle, creepy music. And yes, again, heavy-handed, showing the books of guillotines and <laughs> pages with the big word evil on it. But... I knew what kind of movie I was going into, and I thought it was effective for this kind of movie. You know, you name something Final Destination... I kind of know what to suspect. True. In fact, they mentioned that the filmmakers really were fighting to call this Flight 180, but they were afraid that it would get confused with Red Eye and Con Air and all these flight movies. And so the studio insisted on Final Destination. But that's why 180 is all over the movie, as that was going to be the title of the film. Makes it harder for the sequel. Passenger 57 would get confused with this movie. I understand. Sure. <laughs> this is setting up the tone of the film, this opening sequence, and we find out it's the main character's bedroom like you said earlier brock he's got lynched puppets and books about the french revolution and (laughs) satan and airline ticket we're looking at alex's room right i would have preferred it if this was todd's room honestly because todd seemed a little quirky a little weird plus todd's the one who later on gets hung so if this were todd's room or just the room of an abnormal person or even claire because she's kind of weird too yeah. 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 She's like this odd metal sculptress thing. So yeah, if it was an artsy person or a darker person or something, I'd go with it. But Alex is very milquetoast, isn't he? He's just like as bland as you can get. He's the cornflakes of white America. So all this stuff in his room, yeah, it doesn't quite play out. Right. 
And I agree with you. I think he was kind of bland. Later on, when he does freak out and things in the movie, I thought because he's getting the premonitions, he was a little more interesting. But I didn't really get behind him for most of the movie. He wasn't my favorite character, let's put it that way. You mentioned the premonition. Is he having one in this very opening scene where his mother's taking the luggage tag off the bag because he's like, you gotta leave the luggage tag on. It's good luck. We don't want anything to happen to the flight. You gotta leave the luggage tag on. I mean, this film's not subtle, right? So I can't decide if he's having a vision or if his mother was dooming him by removing that luggage tag or if it's just the filmmakers kind of having a joke like the hanging doll yeah i thought it was just maybe he was a little bit superstitious i don't know though in a movie about plane crashes how do you not have someone make the joke about how flying's like the safest thing in the world safer than driving a car that blows my mind they didn't <laughs> drop a line in there but i think he's just superstitious and i've never heard of a superstition where you got to keep the old tags on your luggage that's usually causes lost luggage but <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was paranoia. Yeah, I just thought they were trying to set up that he was a superstitious kid. Yeah, I thought it was paranoia. And so later on, when it does happen, when he has his premonition in the plane, I thought it lined up him just being paranoid. You know what I mean? That's what I thought they were going for. And that would be great if he was a neurotic character and they're like, oh, God, Alex is having a freak out again. But <laughs> this is supposed to be like a once in a lifetime thing, his premonition about the airplane. We make a good point because the next scene, we meet all the teenagers who are going on the flight. and We have this pretty horror film like scene, like we have a nightmare of five when they're all hanging out in the parking lot at the school. And we're trying to quickly get a flash of all these students who are going on this flight. And right there would have been a great opportunity to really get. Alex's paranoia as his character trait, but instead, he gets asked to take a shit. <laughs> I, I don't know what the point of that scene was. Like, it doesn't pay off at all. I agree. It does not. It's like, they linger on this top view of him and his friend shitting in the airport, <laughs> and it just lingers there, and then it moves on, and it never goes back. Listen, Todd's not wrong. You don't want to shit on a plane, okay? <laughs> You want to take care of it in the airport. I've heard of women going to the bathroom together to powder their nose or whatever like that, but I just thought it was a really odd scene considering exactly what Jacob said. It just did not pay off. <laughs> no, it didn't ever go anywhere, and it is odd. I mean, Jacob, we do see each other at Comic-Con every year. How often have I gone, hey, Jacob, let's go take a shit? <laughs> Never. <laughs> yes. You will this year. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not something guys do, ladies. <laughs> No, it's not. Then they set up the flight. They have a disabled person on the flight. They have a bunch of teenagers on the flight. And somebody calls it out. It's got to be a fucked up God to take down this flight. And it's Carter who says that. And yeah, you've got the handicapped guy right there, the crying baby. But you know the plane's going down. Yeah, and then when he looks out at the wing when he's boarding the flight, I thought they were going to show us a gremlin on the wing like in Twilight Zone. Oh, thank you. I kept having Twilight Zone flashbacks during this whole airplane scene. Whatever Alex's trait is, if he's paranoid, why not drop some reference like that where he keeps looking out at the wing or something to explain who his character is? But yes, I got total Twilight Zone flashbacks with the whole paranoia and the airplane going on here. Some movies actually point out that they're ripping off other things, and that makes it clever and cute because the audience is thinking about it. Like when they reference Star Wars as mind trick or something, they actually say these aren't the droids you're looking for. I saw that in the movie recently. I can't remember which one it was. But thank God they call it out themselves because then it's okay they did it, quote unquote. If they just started doing that and have everyone else play on his paranoia a little bit, when he does freak out later, it could have had an even bigger of a payoff and they missed that opportunity. That's a shame. It's not like every time you're on a plane that that's what it's referencing. It's what we thought of, but I don't know that the filmmakers are going for it. If it was about a guy on a wing, that would be one thing, but it's about a crashing airplane, and you'd think there's a lot of films about crashing airplanes they could also go to. And I think that 
in this case, it wouldn't necessarily be necessary. There's not a whole lot of other references in this movie in that way. Now, strangely, they decide to call out a ton of horror movie makers in this. I mean, obviously, I mentioned this before, Hitchcock, right? That's not a name that I run into every day. And I looked it up and apparently like every character in this is named after a horror movie maker i'm not talking about our era like the 20s and 30s like the cabinet of dr caligari and some of that stuff i remember from film school that's where all these names are hitchcock being one of the more recent and most obvious so they're trying to call out the names of horror and suspense masters throughout the ages of film but they're doing it in different ways than i would think i never knew about the 1910s horror master clear rivers until I really got into this film. <laughs> Not the first names, it's primarily the last names. <laughs> But the one you picked, Jacob, actually happened to not be one. <laughs> Rivers was named after the director's assistant. Wow. So good one to pick. That's the best name in this film. Come on. Having done a little bit of writing myself, sometimes naming characters can be as random as picking up a phone book and looking for a name. And sometimes it can be as pretentious as to pull from biblical and mythical origins and name characters in a way that has meaning. I know a lot of Spanish literature and Hispanic literature is big on that type of stuff. Here, it seems like they went to the internet and just looked up horror films, though. And that was kind of disappointing. I would have preferred to see them reference the masters in ways like you mentioned, Brock. I don't necessarily consider the Twilight Zone as the masters. You know, Hitchcock and Serling don't normally go together. Hitchcock, well, Serling. But I would have preferred to see some more nods in the filmmaking and not just in the naming. Sure. And speaking of that, I was surprised at Stifler's character in this because I've never seen him play not Stifler. Yeah. In Dukes of Hazard, he was Stifler. In that movie with The Rock, he was Stifler. He's basically pretty one note. Here, it's like Stifler trying to be a dork. We get introduced to all these characters, and before I know what their names are, I'm just trying to pick out who the stock characters are. So I have main guy, that's Alec. Weird girl, clear. <laughs> You get to Stifler, and I put that dumb guy. Like, he's not his cocky, douchebag, Stifler self in this film. He's very kind of toned down and just kind of dumb, rides his bike around the town for some reason. Because he just passed his driving test, right? We learn later in the movie. Yes. They have the jock, the Tom Cruise-looking jock guy. And the slutty girl. I call them the slutty couple. Yeah. Because they make out yeah, in public. pretty much. Hot teacher. <laughs> exactly, the hot teacher. Wacky sidekick, you know, Todd. Very, you know, standard group here. Did you guys think these felt like any high school students? I mean, I realize we're not millennial generation, but these guys feel like who you went to high school with, because to me, this was really screaming out like movie high schoolers. It did not feel like real kids with real relationships. The shitting thing being a big part of that. <laughs> I think the relationship between the jock Tom Cruise guy and Alex certainly is reminiscent of some people's high school experience. I'm not saying mine, but saying... So were you Carter or Alex, Brock? Let's get into this. Let's just break this down. Let's have our session. I'm listening. <laughs> In ninth grade, I was Alex. Let's just put it that way. When I got my growth spurt, maybe maybe I paid back a little bit of that. But the point is that I agree with you. It was high school stock characters 101 from the Hollywood, for the most part. The Hollywood? The Hollywood, yeah. The Hollywood. Okay. Central casting kind of thing. Absolutely. Jacob, you said you were writing down, you know, these pseudo names from this. Sadly, I know way too much of this cast. From my brief time watching Dawson, I knew Kerr Smith, who played Carter. Oh. He was the gay one on the Dawson. The Dawson? Yeah, the Dawson. <laughs> it's a Kevin Smith thing. The one who was bugging me, though, because I couldn't place where I knew him from, was Todd. And I looked him up. Where I knew him from was actually another movie 
tangentially related in a Kevin Bacon kind of way to the Dawson. I was a fan of Katie Holmes from that and saw Disturbing Behavior where Chad played the evil albino. So I was referring to these people from their other roles there. The ones I didn't know actually was Alex, really. I knew Clear from Heroes. Yeah, I didn't recognize her at first. I didn't realize that was her. I recognized the jaw. It's a little square. Yeah, in the teeth later on. It's funny, Arnie, because I didn't recognize any of these people because I didn't watch the Dawson, and I apparently don't watch a lot of movies that you do. But Alex, I did know because he has a small role in one of my favorite indie films called Salt Lake City Punk, where he plays a junkie punk drug dealer. That's the one character I'm like, oh, I recognize that guy from the movie. I didn't know anyone else here. (laughs) To clarify, I was not a big Dawson fan or anything. (laughs) I can't take it back now. And I'm going to say it now, again, not worthy of an Oscar by any means, but I liked Allie Lauder in this movie more than I liked her on anything she did on Heroes. She's not Meryl Streep, but she certainly is okay in this movie. What I didn't know, and again, going back to this for the first time in a long time, what I didn't realize is who the main group was. Because there's the two kind of slutty chicks who want to trade seats to sit together because one doesn't want to sit by Todd and the other doesn't want to sit by Alex. And But they took their shits before the plane flight. They're not going to smell. Yeah, but then he goes on about how he has a bladder infection. This guy is not getting any on this trip to Paris. He's the only man in Paris not getting laid. There's no Mile High Club being joined. No. So I wasn't sure if the slutty girls were going to be part of it because of Todd's infection for them. And then Todd has a brother on the flight. Usually the brother will be part of the group. So I was not able going in to peg who our core characters would be from this scene. So many people are introduced and I just didn't figure it out except for Stifler and Kerr Smith because I'd recognize them. And I thought the French teacher who spoke only French was going to survive. I pegged him to survive, and I was wrong. Over the hot teacher? Well, I thought both of them were going to survive. You can't have two adults in this film. Clearly, they thought the same thing, Jacob, because one of them got back on the flight. <laughs> the more annoying one got back on the flight. I'm yes, happy and I'm fine that. with that, too. It would be a fucked up god to leave that French teacher alive. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we're kind of being like the filmmakers who are toying around with it. Let's get to the plane crash! Please. Because I'm going to call it out right now. I loved the sequence. I loved how visceral it was. I loved the visuals. I loved the teachers reaching out for the girl. But usually, when they pull that trick of, it's just a dream, it really pisses me off. Obviously, it's the conceit of the movie. It's the gimmick of the movie. And here, it was a little put out at first. And then when they started breaking it down for us until the plane explode, then it really worked. I thought that entire sequence was really, really strong and really got me into the rest of the movie. It really kept my interest. Yeah, I really liked this scene when I saw it the year before in 1999 in Fight Club. (laughs) That one really worked for me. When I saw this one, I guess because I knew this was a fake out. You know, you show Alex getting caught up in an explosion. I knew this wasn't the real thing. Right. I just knew it. For me, I guess I'm like, get on with it. Let's get past this fake out and get on with the movie. I'm not too big a man to admit it. The first time I saw this film, I thought this was all real. And yes, I knew the film was about Alex and things. I thought that the way Death's design was flawed from the trailer, you know, which had Tony Todd in it, I thought it was because somehow they survived, like they would mysteriously be appearing on the ground or something. I didn't know how they survived, but I did not suspect this to be a dream sequence, partially because I'd never before seen a movie where they blew the majority of their budget on a dream sequence, other than like Nightmare on Elm Street, where that's the point. (laughs) But here, it's like, I was going with it, and yes, you got it right, Brock. This is visceral, this is exciting. If the opening credits didn't get you, this grabs you by the balls and tugs. 
I agree completely. Yeah, it's so astounding. Unfortunately, here's the problem. This is a movie that I wouldn't necessarily say pulls its punches, but did it pull its punch by not showing us the screaming baby and the handicapped guy again to kind of drive home the fucked up God bit? I didn't even think of that. Yes, if this is a real filmmaker making this movie, <laughs> then yes, they would have. What are you saying about James Wong, sir? <laughs> Look, we already talked about this. They got a shit scene that never pays off. You think they're going to pay off a crying baby? Somewhere James Wong is offended, sir. Well, you know, James Wong also did the ones and Dragon Ball Evolution. So if he wants to have a conversation with me, I got plenty to offend him. Yeah, I really love this. And when they reveal that it's just a vision, it does kind of take you off guard. And the sad thing is, of course, you don't get to see how it actually plays out. Isn't it so much better that they did fake us out like this, that if they just had him saying he had a vision and they sit off and then the airplane explodes in the background like it does? Yes, without that extreme scene, I don't think the movie would work because I think you really need that to get us invested in what's going on and really get us hooked in. Because the rest of the movie with all the kills, they're not like that. And that's the difference. And that's why this film, at this point, starts to work because of that one scene. But here's the thing that gets me is, all right, so Alex has this vision. I don't like it in movies where they just have this kind of thing and then drop it. Alex has this vision. He never really seems to have had visions before, yet he believes this one implicitly because of the deja vu I mentioned in the summary. And then he never really kind of wonders why did I have this vision or anything like that. The whole supernatural bit about this seems to be the whole death design thing. And to get there, they had to introduce the psychic. So it's like the psychic is the arch nemesis of death or something and i really don't think the writers knew to be honest i had the same exact note arnie they go into this whole thing about death design but they don't explain how this kid got the vision what stepped in to defeat death's design or try to alter death's design it's a huge gaping what in this movie and i think the filmmakers just want us to go with it and not ask that question because they don't even go anywhere near it if they have so much into death's design they have to have something something about the other side of it and they never cover it Brock, I don't know if you had flashbacks to the Adjustment Bureau while you were watching this, but when they start talking about Death's design, like, that's where I went back. Like, we knew, okay, God, he has this design, and here are these two people messing it up, and we gotta go after them so we can stick to the design. And so I'm like, okay, this is cool, so Death has a design. One, why does he need a design? Because as far as I know, none of us are immortal, so we're all gonna <laughs> die eventually. So why does he need a design where babies get blown up? And two, they drop that line, you know, it's got to be a fucked up God, uh, this plane crash or blow up or whatever. Is death God? Because <laughs> it would seem like with that line, they're tying the two together. But then who's giving the visions to Alex? Right. Wouldn't that be God? Is God trying to intervene? Maybe they're supposed to push the baby off the plane. You know, he pushed Stifler off the plane instead. <laughs> yeah, there's all these questions. And I'm waiting for him. By this point, when they start getting into the premise of the film that, okay, there's a design by death and remess it up so now he's after us i'm like ooh, okay this is a good mystery to unravel and where's all this going and it doesn't go anywhere <laughs> i want to state i am fine with movies that introduce a supernatural element so long as they have a reason and an explanation for why they're even there like what i'm coming up against in my mind repeatedly is friday the 13th part 7 the new blood where all of a sudden there's a telekinetic in crystal lake that's fine though the whole reason she's there is because of her telekinesis powers she's had them before she's coming to terms with them why is she telekinetic we don't know but she is that's part of what defines her if you go to the film jeepers creepers there's a 
psychic in that, who has visions knowing where the creeper's gonna come. Sort of similar to what we're seeing here in Final Destination, and not the only similarity I might add, I'll get to the other one later. She has the visions, but the whole thing is, she's a psychic. Kind of like Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. What she is, is psychic. So, I will go with that, but if you have somebody who's never had a vision before, doesn't really seem to have visions again... And this is his only vision, and you don't tell me why. And you don't even have the character really trying to explain going to his mom, ever have a vision, anything like that. I know it would have slowed this movie down, and that's the last thing it needed. But I wanted something there to kind of pay it off. And like you said, Jacob, why did this fight against death? The whole death's design thing. It said... But it's meaningless. It's nonsense. Even The Shining. I was thinking of The Shining. You got the little kid. He's psychic. How do you know that? How do you know he has some gift? Because a magical black man says, you have The Shining. There's a magical black man in this film. Doesn't address <laughs> it. It's just Alex has a psychic vision for once in his life. You know, what I would have liked to have seen is play up his paranoia. You know, did he just have this crazy imagination where he thought it blew up and it happened to coincide? Like, there's some places I think this film could have gone to get really interesting. But they drop it. You know, this is like a first draft of the film. They could have really done something neat. I really like some of the ideas they bring up in this film. I wish they would have developed them more. I got one question. This came out in 2000. If they had waited a year and it was after September 11th, would this movie have come out? Absolutely not. No way. When V for Vendetta was supposed to come out and the London Railway got bombed, they sat on that movie for six months. It was supposed to be Remember, Remember, the 5th of November, and then it became, oh, Remember, April. Yeah, I mean, there's even scenes where they think Alex is a terrorist. I'm like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. This would have been a year later. There's no way you would have had the plane crash. They got their production out right on time because it's really uncomfortable at times. What's a little bit funny about you saying that is that this is very much based off of a real plane that crashed right after takeoff in 96, a TWA flight that had a group of students flying to Paris and there were no survivors. So in certain regards, this is based on true events, but I guess because it didn't have the broad reaching impact and notoriety of 9-11, none of the survivors of the family of TWA Flight 800 were complaining about how this was capitalizing on their events. Investigating this is the FBI, which I liked the addition of the FBI into this. I liked that little bit of realism. And I liked the fact that they got one of the most famous FBI agents of all. Agent Roba. He was an FBI agent in U.S. Marshals and The Fugitive. He's one of Tommy yeah. Lee Jones's guys. So to see him as a Fed, I'm like, these are all the same universe. <laughs> he's the guy who knows the sound of an elevated train. I like this guy a lot. Yeah, he's been around for years, one of those working actors, and his name is Daniel Roebuck. But then we jump a month later, and that kind of caught me off guard. I don't know that I ever realized a month later had passed, and Death's just sitting idly by for a month waiting for them to build their memorial, and then Todd dies. And we get to see Death not only has a design, but he also has a modus operandi of blowing wind, (laughs) (laughs) a shadowy hand, and John Denver music. Is there John Denver music in every death? There is. Before every death, Rocky Mountain High plays. Yeah. It is there on every death. I only notice it when they really called it out. She puts on the John Denver record. I didn't realize it was in every scene. This movie is all about the misdirects too, right? Because Todd's alone in the bathroom. We pretty much know he's going to die. And there's some water coming. He's like trimming his nose hair because 16-year-olds have so much nose hair. And you think, is he going to jam it up into his brain? No, he sets it down. Then he's reaching for a plug. He plugs in a radio. Is he going to fry himself because he's standing in water? No. (laughs) But then he hears the radio's playing John Denver and unplugs it as any right-minded teen would do 
I gotta say, though, I loved how they played with the anticipation. When it comes to horror, I'm not a big slasher person. I like a lot of J-horror, where it's all about mood and tone. And so I like that. Your imagination's always gonna come up with something gorier than what they could show you, in most cases. So you see this water trickling out, and he's got this razor. I'm like, oh, really? He's gonna just slip and, like, cut his throat? But no, he puts that down, then he picks up the tweezers. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going to jam that through his brain. And like, I'm freaking <laughs> out. And then you see the radio, oh, he's going to electrocute him. I'm like, what's going to happen here? There's like all these ways they set up for him to die. And now I'm really into the film because I loved how they started playing with you there. I do too. This is where the movie got fun for me. In the screen retrospective, we talked about how it was making references to horror films and calling back all of the cliches from horror films. Here, they're doing it, but they're doing it in a different way. They know their audience knows horror. So we know all the different ways they're going to kill him. It's like, ah, uh-uh. it's like the oldest trick, but it's so great and so playful. It's like, we are a ball of yarn and James Wan is the cat. I have to agree with both of you. I thought the scene was fun, fun, fun for all the reasons we talked about. And don't forget, I think John Denver played in the bathroom when they were taking their poops earlier, too. <laughs> but I could be wrong about that. But I loved everything about the scene except how he actually gets it. Yes, Brock, yes. I didn't understand what turned around his neck. I didn't get it. What was that? There's old bathrooms that have just a drawstring that you put the curtain on. They don't have the rod. And I think it was something like that. You know, he slips and it wraps around his throat. I love the anticipation so much. And then you get to the actual death. And I'm like, eh, that's kind of boring. Yeah, yeah. I was like, how did Piano Wire get in the bathroom? How'd that happen? Admittedly, that was a little bad, but I like the execution of it. I like the little details of, like, the CGI bloodshot eyes, you know? They really tried to create some realism there. I've never seen eye blood vessels burst in a strangulation in a film before. I like that. You want a victim to suffer a little bit and struggle a little bit, and he's trying to get saved. It wasn't as fun as it would have been had it been something really gory and really over the top and all that. But this is the one death that kind of bothers me, though. I'm fine with how he died, but then the water disappears. It, like, recedes, and it's like death not only has a plan, but he also has a cover-up. Yeah, he's wiping off his fingerprints. (laughs) That's right. I thought maybe what they were going to do was try to set up, and and they kind of play with this, is try to make it look like someone's actually offing all these people. I thought that would be a cool idea. I would have also liked the idea of maybe playing it coy and letting the viewer wonder, maybe is it Alex killing these people off or some other survivor killing everyone off? Or is it just these weird coincidences that death's causing? Like, I would have liked to see some more play with that. So you're saying hint that someone could have been in there doing that to him at the end of the scene? You would have to change how it's filmed. But they want to go with the anticipation i get that i would have liked the idea more of having it be a murder mystery you know there's the riddle the guys hanging by the noose but there's no chairs or tables in the room but there's a big wet spot underneath them oh he was on a block of ice played up like there could be a murderer out there that's not just this magical ghost i can see what you're saying jacob i would actually take it just a slightly different direction you mentioned fight club earlier go with something like that where alex thinks he's having premonitions but in fact alex has a split personality tyler durden who did blow up the plane and and now is killing his friends. You know, we've seen it a million times. Is Alex the killer or is Alex crazy or what's going on with Alex where we could play it either way? Does death really have a design or is Alex just offing all his friends for some reason? Yeah, and I think I wanted that because they didn't do anything with death's design. If they would have had a cool reason that death wanted to kill people in weird ways, 
then I could have just gone with death is killing these people, but they didn't go there. So I would have liked them to toy with me more. The murder mystery or the split personality, something. They were going with that Alex seems to be near all these deaths, though. So the FBI would suspect. So you get a little bit of that? Not really. Here, Alex is nowhere nearby. Alex shows up at the end. Right. This is the only one, I think. I think the rest of them, he's right there with them, right? Teacher's death, the Stifler's death. He's right near everyone else's death. So the FBI starts to suspect him, and you get a tiny bit of a taste of that. That's what I got anyway watching the movie. I don't think I necessarily need that kind of murder mystery here. I don't think I needed it for the movie I was watching, but I do see how that can be a fun conceit for a different movie. I always enjoy that kind of thing. I wish it had been played up a bit more, because as we're going to get into, when the FBI does start going after Alex, nothing really comes of it. It's just another thing there, but it doesn't have a lot of pressure on it. In a movie like this, where everything's being ratcheted up, and every single thing is an obstacle, including the authority figures are trying to come after you, it would have been nice if that had been played for some tension, but... In the hand of a more skilled writer, more skilled director, more experience at the very least, it might have played better. Here, yeah, I think that's kind of a sour note. It just doesn't work quite right. And speaking of notes, I want to talk one more second about John Denver. Do you guys think it's in bad taste that John Denver, beloved musician by many, I have his Muppets album myself? As do I. (laughs) My wife has it on cassette tape. Okay, now I feel like death is out to get us. That's a weird coincidence. (laughs) It's John Denver's design. Maybe John Denver is death, and that's why they play his music every time. My question is, John Denver died in a plane crash in the Rockies. Very recent when this movie came out. Yeah, so obviously... This is not a coincidence. The filmmakers were very aware that a beloved musician died in a plane crash. It's not like it's something old where they're playing Sweet Home Alabama. It's not like Buddy Holly. They're playing Rocky Mountain Way. It's not La Bamba. They're specifically pulling a recent death. Is it in bad taste? Is it in bad taste? I don't necessarily think it's bad taste. I don't necessarily think it's good taste either. I'll be honest. I don't care, but I'm not a John Denver fan. So I was trying to see if anybody else was... You know, I'll say I thought it was hilarious. (laughs) Because it is bad taste. Like, this movie that's playing John Denver music about an airplane blowing up. It's so subversive and wrong, that's what I liked about it. Stand-up comedy isn't there to make you feel good. It's there to ruffle your feathers. And so for me, I loved the fact that they used John Denver. I would have loved that they would have mixed it up. Played Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. All those people who died on planes. Go with it. Have some attitude in this film. I would have loved it. I didn't think bad taste. I just thought because it's a fact. The man died in a plane crash. This movie's about a plane crash. But they're using it as a punchline, Brock. I think that's where the taste comes in. That It's a joke for those who know. The second or third time it's done, it becomes a punchline. Yes. While watching it, Arnie, I didn't find it tasteless. I thought it was appropriate because he died in a plane crash, I guess. Appropriate is probably the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like, in a weird way, it made sense. This was the second thing that also kind of had me calling back to Jeepers Creepers, but it must have worked. I mean, the very next year, this was played up on only instead of John Denver in the Jeepers Creepers film, the Creeper only showed up when that song was playing Jeepers Creepers. So be it the original or the Susie and the Banshees version, he wasn't very discerning, but I guess they really liked the musical cue to bring in the killer, or in this case, Death himself. Yeah, but that's different, though, because John Denver died in a plane crash, and it's a movie about plane crash. Did these people die from a creeper in real life? I mean, the connection's not entirely there. (laughs) In addition to Death's bad taste in music, another supernatural element, Clear shows up at Todd's death 
because she's an empath and could feel Alex having a vision that Todd died? Is that what it was? Am I saying that right? I had no idea why she was there. She said she feels things. I know they said something. Yeah. She's talking about this metal sculpture that's a giant spring with like a flower on it. And she's like, this sculpture is you, Alex. I don't understand that. And then she goes on to say, we've never talked in all our years together in school, but when you had your vision on the plane, I could feel what you saw, so that's why I got off too, and tonight I could feel you seeing Todd dying. Yeah, I just assumed she was the Ali Sheedy of the group, the weird girl, (laughs) and so she did weird stuff, like make metal sculptures and follow crazy people around that said the plane was going to blow up. I didn't really get what her deal was. It did feel that way, didn't it? Because she's like a poser. Like, I don't have any feelings unless you feel them. And she's also like, let's break into the mortuary. What a 180 that was. Because we see her earlier, and she's reading Henry James. She can't be bothered with the people around her. She's reading a book while they're boarding a flight. And then she says, hey, let's break in somewhere. What? (laughs) That was a complete 180 in character in the middle of the movie. This is much like the psychic thing itself. Having seen this film a number of times, unless you guys picked up on something I didn't, this whole thing is poorly defined. I don't quite know why it's in there. I guess they needed, as Jacob said, the mystical black man to show up. The candy man. Yes, candy man. And explain Tony Todd, what great casting, because he's candy man. He's got a resume a mile long. Platoon, fuck it. Candyman. Candyman is there. <laughs> like, I don't see many horror films, but I've apparently seen Candyman, because that's what I knew him from. And what's great is in Candyman, he's a dead guy. <laughs> Coming back to reap something. We'll have to do that retrospective to remind me. But he was dead and back. So to think that this man would have otherworldly knowledge. Great casting. But Jacob, you were sad the shit scene never came back. I was sad we get Tony Todd for like three minutes to go. Death has a design. You can't thwart that design. And I was wondering, was he death? Like, that's kind of the feeling that I got, is they wanted us to think that he was death. So I thought maybe we'd see him again later in the film. I knew we were never going to see him again. I thought his role was to give us the missing link these kids can't figure out themselves. He's there to give. I kind of got the impression since he's a mortician or an undertaker or whatever he is. That's not an impression. I mean, that's stated. Yeah. Right. He's there. He's the mortician. <laughs> I thought he was a Grim Reaper kind of guy. Well, that's what I said. He's death. Isn't Grim Reaper and death the same thing? The thing is, he is like this mystical guy. He knows way too much. Again, we don't know why he knows this. We don't know why he's there unless he's also a psychic and knew they were coming. He didn't seem surprised by these two teenagers breaking in. Their whole reason was, we have to see Todd's body. And then when they see Todd's body, they're just like, ooh, it's a corpse. Actually, they ask about the things near the neck, remember? Yeah. That's the whole point of them seeing the body. Because he had claw marks, and why would he be clawing at the string if he hung himself? Never mind the fact that, all right, my father-in-law is a mortician, and everybody who hangs themselves claws at it. Oh, I I didn't know that. It's always the last minute of regret. It's instinct. If something's choking you, you claw at it, even if you wanted it to choke you a minute before. Now playing, we educate on death. But much like me knowing too much about death, Tony Todd knows too much about death's design. It's shoehorned in. Well, he even drops the line, something like, I'll see you soon or I'll see you again. Like, that's why I thought, okay, this guy is death incarnate. And of course, he's going to be mortician. But that never pays off. To me, he's the old man at Camp Blood in Friday the 13th. You're going to Camp Blood, aren't you? Or whatever he said. That's who he is. I had no problem not seeing him again. 
here's the other thing I had a problem with not seeing him again is he brings an eerie gravitas that this film lacks. I mean, when death does show up, it's a shadow that reminds me nothing so much as Patrick Swayze and Ghost. Remember when all the little black gremlin ghosts were stealing the souls? <laughs> the poorly animated ghost, yes. Yes, that's what death reminded me of in here. And so I would have preferred it be the candy man who opens his coat and all the bees fly out. The thing is, this movie walks a razor's edge. You know, it's a post-scream horror film. It's trying to balance its horror and its comedy. And I think it's doing real well on the comedy, but when it tries to be horror and supernatural, it just fails. I think it's not well thought out. Because the comedy is very evident the very next scene where Alex and Clear bring the group together and Terry gets hit by a bus. I even laughed. I liked the kill, but it was funny. Artie, is like when you saw Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass gets ran over by the car. Yes. Your reaction was to laugh, and that's what I did. I laughed because I loved how just excessive it was, just this huge bus slamming into her. It's a funny kill. Yes, I liked it too. <laughs> it also, it's the exact opposite of Todd's death, right? Because Todd, we're sitting there, we're expecting it, we're waiting for it, all of this. Here, you don't see it coming. There's no music. There's nothing telling you. And she goes, you all could drop fucking dead. Boom. And they all get sprayed in the face with the blood. Which is great. Uh, it was fun. It was a really fun death. Yeah. I love exploitation films just because how they're so excessively violent. It's fun. And I'm liking the death scenes in this. I'm not a big horror fan, but I like violence. <laughs> so I like the violence in this film. It's keeping me watching. And from what you said earlier, Jacob, how you like subversive things, it's a subversive form of humor to make death this funny. I mean, the next one, Miss Luton. Oh, I love this scene. Best scene of the film. Best scene of the film, I think. I gotta give it to the plane, but me this too. is a close second. This one reminded me of the beginning of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, when it was one thing after another that was about hurt Roger with the knives and the ironing board and the thing that falls on his head. It was one thing after another. For this one, it was kind of cartoony in that all these things are going to happen to her, but damn if I wasn't entertained by it. Loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun to watch. You know, again, going back to Todd's death, where they do all the fake outs, and now they got everything everywhere. Everything just blow up at any minute and kill Valerie, the hot teacher. It actually kind of reminded me how goofy I mean, she gets stabbed in the throat, Her the computer blows up, and a piece of glass goes in her throat. I'm smiling. I think this is funny. Arnie, you said in the summary is vaudevillian. I totally agree with you. This reminded me of Gremlins. Yes. Yes. We'll see if it's yes when I explain why it reminded me of Gremlins. But every time, <laughs> I don't even remember the character's name, but the girl, she describes like, Every holiday is associated with a death. It's just so stupid <laughs> and funny. Like, President's Day, I don't want to talk about President's Day. Christmas, you know, my uncle or whatever. Like, I liked how stupid it was and, like, how they just toyed with the idea of violence. What's funny is, Jacob, I actually put that gremlin's note in my list for the scene on the beach of course where clear is talking about her father's death and i'm like wow phoebe kate's much yeah we always reference the scene a lot we've <laughs> not the first time we brought the scene up <laughs> so maybe we should put it on the ban list in the future <laughs> but <laughs> i thought you were going with jacob it's with gremlin's deaths have that kind of subversive funniness to them with them go in the microwave or the blender or in the second one when he goes into the shredder that kind of funny gross kind of way they die and these obscure funny ways they do it that's what i thought you were going to say here and it works for there too i mean this very much feels like a, a spiritual grandchild of gremlins, the way they play with violence. Yeah, you see, I was saying yes to gremlins because the way gremlins would... So no one had the same idea when I said gremlins. No, we all no. were saying it's gremlins for three totally different reasons. But I'm thinking about how Stripe at the end would use the machinery to kill people or how, like, the big snowplow went through the house. I was thinking how the monitor explodes because she spills vodka in it. 
and it stabs her in the neck with glass. And then here's the great thing with Todd. We didn't know which would kill him. And it turned out to be what we didn't suspect here. All of it kills her, right? Yes. Because it is the knives and the fire and the vodka and the monitor. It all combines. It just, it's overkill in the most fun fashion. And then she blows up. After all of it, she blows up. Yes. Yes. And Alex is running out and Stifler just happens to be delivering papers or something outside. And so this is where the FBI really start to think Alex is the killer because he's seen running out of Miss Luton's house. And his footprints were there in the blood and his fingerprints on the knife. Yeah. And I love that they said the blood caramelized. Yes. Just a nice touch. I love it's come from this moron. They established this guy as a moron, yet he understands <laughs> how blood caramelizes in the, <laughs> on the floor. And so we got the train scene next. Unfortunately, the train scene's way too long in coming. This is where I started to think the film dragged. The beach scene, specifically. Alex is on the run. Alex needs to talk to his friends. His friends don't believe him. Blah, blah, blah. I wanted more of the Miss Luton suspense type stuff. Anytime they tried to do character development, they failed so miserably. 100% agree. I like when this was a live-action cartoon. That's when it worked. When they try to turn it into a serious film... I was bored. And I'm sure you both saw the deleted scene the DVD. This was supposed to be even more of a serious film, and they cut some of that stuff out, thank goodness. Oh, uh, yeah. We'll talk about the alternate ending when yes. we get there. But, Absolutely. yeah. The test audiences were damn right in saying get rid of it. And, in fact, the test audiences at the end should have said cut more and explained what the fuck Tony Todd's doing here. <laughs> So they go to the train and we see a scene where Carter's playing chicken and Carter's kind of a douchebag. We want him to die, right? <laughs> yeah, he should have been the first one to die. Come on, you don't kill the best friend. You got to kill the douchebag first. Why is he still alive? Alex saves him. This is again, I know we've hit on this point many times, but Alex has a vision of a seatbelt tearing. And so only Alex can tear the seatbelt. So therefore, Alex is the only one who can thwart death's design. Martyr complex much? He's on a quest. <laughs> He's on a mission from God. I just wish he would have told us who put him on this quest, because that's what I'm still wondering. But why didn't he have a vision that Billy Hitchcock's going to get decapitated? Although, I'm glad they didn't foreshadow it, because much like the bus, what a great thing. We see the metal shard. Wait, wait, wait. They didn't foreshadow it? They showed that piece of metal sitting on the ground like 20 times. You knew that was going to get ricocheted out and hit someone. But you didn't know who. And you thought it would be Carter, because Carter was next. You know what I love about it, too? It wasn't a clean cut at the neck. Like, part of his jawline was still there like he cut off most of his head not all of his head yeah the lesser movies go for the neck yeah and the horrible dummy that <laughs> bounced down <laughs> yeah i love this death stifler was an underused character in this film i feel i mean by this point american pie had been out was popular i just wish there'd been more of stifler in it but given i felt he wasn't really playing to his strengths kill him it was a fun death i also like the next scene where alex goes off and becomes a recluse this was a fun way to play with expectations. I don't know why the FBI isn't still after him. Or why they can't find him. But the cabin in the woods scene with he's only eating soft foods. He's got the gloves on. He's putting candles inside little buckets of water so they can't burn him. Duct taped everything against the wall. I laughed out loud with his tetanus. Ah, I almost didn't see it. Yeah. I love this scene. It's so great. Like the humor in it. If you like this scene, then you'll probably like Alex in Salt Lake City Punk because he plays the same kind of deranged character. 
it was so much fun because isn't this the logical extension if you believe death is out to get you and anything could kill you? Wouldn't you end up going crazy the longer you stayed alive? We talked about how so much of this film is illogical and they don't explain anything. This pays off finally. This seems like a logical extension of what these characters are going through. And it's funny. I love it. I also like how it ends because not since Friday the 13th have we seen a character try to escape somebody in a rowboat. <laughs> a point I made on that podcast Many years ago. Yeah, I do love this scene. It's one of the few times that the action pauses, and I still enjoy it. They had fun with the scene, and it's clear. It's it's just a fun thing to watch. We're now getting to the climax of the film, and everything's in misdirect, isn't it? We don't know who's next, because Alex is confused who was sitting where and where the fireball was going, and he saved Carter. So is Carter next? Is Clear next? Is he next? And you see things happening to all of them, and... It was exciting, but it also started to fatigue me a little by the end. It got to be a bit much. This climax went on way too long for me. Yes, you see everything flying apart and blowing up and electrical lines, and you got to free the dog and risk your life. Like, it just went on way too long. I think because they had that scene in the beach, they thought that we cared more about Claire, and that's why <laughs> the scene dragged on. That's true, is I never cared for any of these characters. You have a point there, but I did enjoy seeing them slaughtered. I did like that they had the power line because that's a very dangerous thing and is completely random when it's like that. So I like that as the danger. I just thought the whole thing went on too long. Yeah, so we're all on the same page there. Alex saves Claire by grabbing the power lines and is thrown clear. And then he wakes up and it's six months later. Yeah. Yeah, we knew that was coming, right? We knew he didn't really die. All right, let's talk about the other ending. Yeah, because as soon as he popped into the frame and we see this six months later thing, I had the premonition, I had a vision <laughs> that this may not have been the original ending. And of course, they make a big deal of it on the DVD. While watching the movie, I'm like, this is probably a tacked on improved ending or something. Because whenever you do six months later in a different location, I think in Die Hard 3, furthermore, she's not wearing the wig or whatever. Her hair is completely different. So it kind of gave it away. You know what? I kind of agree with you in that a lot of times it could feel tacked on. I didn't get it with this because there are some movies like Point Break that actually this is how they intended to end. True. I didn't catch it as a bad ending because this movie's been so fun. And the ending we get in Paris, which we'll talk about in a minute, is so much fun, too. Yes. That it felt so cohesive to me. But the ending they gave, oh, my God, it's one of, like, the worst choices I've ever seen. <laughs> Jacob, you obviously didn't see this, so let me explain. Imagine if they tried to give this comedic movie, this fun, violent, Grand Gounal film, a touching ending like it's a drama. And the whole thing is that Alex and Claire had sex on the beach. Claire got pregnant, and now she's fighting to save the life of her baby. Alex sacrifices himself, burns up when he grabs the power line, thwarting Death's design, so that Clear can have his baby, Alex Jr. And is he reincarnated into the baby, so it's like some weird incestual thing? No, he's watching over them, and they know because, like, a leaf blows into the camera before the credits roll. Yeah, it is the worst ending I've seen since the butterfly effect. And the guy we don't like, the, the jock guy, the Tom Cruise guy, lives. Yeah, he lives. That makes no sense. No sense. <laughs> the guy's been a douchebag the whole film, and he's there to comfort Clear and her new baby. So Alex should then become death to go after Carter for hooking up with his girl. Like, that would make sense, but they didn't do that. Maybe in the sequel. No, in the ending we get, because test audiences rightly booed that ending, because what a downer ending to such a fun movie, right? Yeah. Instead, we're six months later, they finally get their trip to Paris, which I actually kind of like, and even they call out, we can't believe we got on a plane again. I couldn't believe it either. That, 
doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Zero sense, but they called it out for me. I'm like, well, thank you for calling that out. Thank you very much. What I wanted, when he pulled out that map, as you mentioned earlier, I was hoping that one of them just take the map and throw it away. This map? You brought the fucking map to Paris? Get over this, man! <laughs> you carried that map on the plane? Well, maybe he was okay because his seat <laughs> yeah. number wasn't his birthday. Another thing that made no fucking sense. <laughs> it would have worked if he was born in January of 1980, since it was flight 180. He was 20. So the death they give us is a lot of fun. I love that. I called it a punchline ending. I loved it. It is. It is exactly a punchline ending because apparently the only reason Alex and Carter are friends is because Carter knows Alex has to live for Carter to keep living. Carter's like his bodyguard now. What I also like about it is they didn't actually show us him getting killed. It's up to the point where he's about to get killed and they cut the black. I thought that was a lot of fun. And a money-saving move. Well, that could be the reason they did it. I think it works completely. I think it's a great way to end the film. I do, too. It's a fun ending. I like horror films that end on a scare, or in this case, a laugh. This movie has been fun and funny, and you walk out with a big old grin knowing Carter just got smashed. And like one of you said earlier, your mind can imagine so much worse than they can show, and I got some imagining about that sign. It's wily Coyote-like. So, Jacob, Arnie, do you recommend Final Destination? Jacob. You know, like I said, I'm the newbie going in here. Didn't seem like a movie for my demographic, just based on the trailers and the marketing. I was surprised. I'm going to give it some credit. It surprised me. I enjoyed it because I enjoy goofy, fun, cartoon, excessive violence. And this movie had a ton of that. It wasn't Saw where everything was so dark and gritty. This was like Saw's fun younger brother where you have the crazy death contraptions, but they're having a good time with it. And I like that. I was smiling through a lot of the film. My problem is, is that it's based on a premise that never pays off. They never explain anything. And it's so frustrating. This could have been a very, very solid recommend. But because of the plot holes, it's still a fun film. I still enjoyed it. Blew away my expectations. So I'm going to give it a weak recommend. Arnie. I'm right there with you, Jacob. I came in as the fan, and honestly, if you look back at our now-playing retrospectives, usually in a series, the first one's the one that ignites the series. There are the exceptions, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Star Trek 2, but by and large, the first one's the best, and coming into Final Destination, where there's not a whole contingent of people saying, Final Destination 4's the best in the series... I kind of figured we'd start off on a high note, and I came in with really good expectations, but yeah, the plot holes frustrated the shit out of me, and when it wasn't a death scene, this movie really dragged, and I was bored a lot of the time, but the death scenes are so much fun, the cat and mouse of everything, the pun, I guess it is, of John Denver music, yeah, I'm giving this film a weak recommend, and I hope that as the series goes on, maybe this will be one that figures out its formula, maybe in a future installment, and is able to improve upon what was started here, because there's some great ideas here, it's a great emotion here, I like the feeling of the film, but watching it, yeah, it's a good way to spend an evening, it's a couple good laughs, but it's not a great film. And I'm right with you both. It's a recommend, but it's a weaker recommend. We already talked about it. There are problems with this movie, but bottom line, it's enjoyable to watch. And the scenes that are fun and good almost make up for the glaring plot holes that can be easily fixed with a couple of lines of dialogue or maybe one extra scene. It's really that easy to fix it, and they didn't do it. Yeah, we can nitpick it all we want, but end of the day, you're going to enjoy watching this movie. So absolutely, it's a recommend, a weaker recommend, but a recommend nonetheless. And I'd like to add one little thing that I'm going to do with at least the first few Final Destination films. 
Final Destination has some of the most unique DVD special features I've ever seen. We'll talk about them as we go, but on this very first DVD, being the first in the series, there was a feature that has wigged me out a little bit, so I'm going to share it with listeners. There is a Find the Date of Your Death special feature on the DVD, and per this DVD, I'm going to die on Saturday, March 9th, 2019 at 12.02 a.m. So now I've shared that with the thousands of now playing listeners. Please check on me Saturday, March 9th, 2019 <laughs> at 1 a.m. and see if it was true. Did you say how? No, it just said when. So now I've got like this ticking clock. Brock, that's up to you to have the vision. <laughs> yeah, I'm having a vision. You're podcasting. It's... <laughs> the internet shuts down. You freak out because we can't get the podcast on time. <laughs> on my DVD version, they had that whole thing about the test screening. And I've never seen a feature so in-depth about test screenings and the value of test screenings. And one of the lines on there really made me laugh out loud. One of the guys, a producer or somebody, says, Steven Spielberg doesn't test audiences' films. We have to. <laughs> <laughs> and he calls himself out as, I'm no Steven Spielberg. And, and whether or not Steven Spielberg should be testing some of his films is up to discussion later on. I'm a star! But uh, that's not his point he was making. I thought that feature was just remarkable. I was really into it, and as we talked about earlier, how the ending was greatly improved because of that. Yeah. It's really an appropriate thing for this movie to highlight as a special DVD feature. So bravo to the makers of the DVD. And hell, there's an isolated score track with that music Brock hated so much, and the composer discussing all the problems of trying to break into Hollywood as a composer. So for that niche of you, enjoy, I didn't. So we will reconvene when we take a road trip. For Final Destination 2. We'll see you soon. Your friend's departure shows that death has a new design for all of you. Now you have to figure out how and when it's coming back at you. But remember the risk cheating the plan of disrespecting the design could incite a fury that could terrorize even the grimaker and you don't even want to fuck with that mac daddy thank you for listening to this episode of now playing well that went well remember to come back to nowplayingpodcast.com each week as we review another final destination film i was meant to see this movie and in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films, such as Saw, Friday the 13th, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Terminator, Star Trek, and many more, as well as individual movie reviews such as Man-Thing, Inception, and The Human Centipede. This is the beginning of the end. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss our movie reviews with other listeners. Hey, don't knock my fan base. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post mini movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Don't worry. Once the others are dead, it'll come back for you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Fuck, I saved them! You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcasts by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available on our homepage. You're dead! You're dead! And you're taking me with you! 
Now Playing's Final Destination series is edited by Samuel, Tim, Brock, and Arnie. Let's go take a shit. Now Playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema. The Final Destination series is the property of New Line Cinema and no infringement is intended. That is some spooky psycho babble. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2011, all rights reserved. I'll see you soon. Which I thought was going to be your intro to the podcast. You say, hi, my name is Arnie. Hey guys, let's go take a shit before we start. That's what I thought you were going to say. It's like saying, like, every time Indiana Jones does something heroic, his theme song comes on. You know, it's that's more similar to that, what you're talking about in my mind. Not really, because, I mean, the characters are hearing it on the radio. And oh. it's the oh, four it's the forebearer of the Creeper's arrival. I see. Oh, I didn't I, I didn't catch that. Okay. I didn't see the movie. I'm not a Jeepers Creeper fan. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't you just turn off the radio then? <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that in our Jeepers Creepers retrospective, though, I guess. <laughs> Now playing, we educate on death. Did you guys have a conversation over dinner one day about that, or did you call him up after seeing the movie and find that out? The things I could tell you about death would make your head explode. <laughs> All right, you know what? Fair <laughs> enough. Let's move on. <laughs> but much 